That is me. Okay. My bad. Sorry, guys. <laughs> what could go wrong? It's 2020. All right. Doing something a little different this year for Christmas. Instead of just giving you kind of the traditional birth stories from, from the Gospels that we typically do, I want to give you a bigger picture, an overview of the story of Jesus from four different perspectives, from the four Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I think it'll give you a little bit better way to appreciate and understand different aspects of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Have you ever wondered that? Like, why do we have four? Why not just one? Well, because these are more than just historical biographies. Uh, th these, are, these are ways to understand his whole reason for coming, his, his mission. This isn't, this isn't just historical facts about the person of Jesus. In fact, the four gospel writers don't even really talk about his life before the age of 30. I mean, only two of them, Matthew and Luke, talk about his birth stories that we always pull out at Christmas time. Uh, Luke gives one other episode from his life when he was 12 years old. But other than that, we don't know really anything about Jesus' childhood, his teenage, or his young adult years. Why is that? Well, it's because there's a purpose. There's a reason that they're not focusing on everything in his life or, or the beginning of his life. They're focused more on the end, on the purpose, why he came, which was to die. He came to die, to be our Savior. And so... That's why we're going to focus on how each one of these different gospel writers shares more than just information. They share the gospel. That's why the four writers are called the four evangelists. Because an evangelist is somebody who shares good news. And that's what the gospel is. And so whenever you share the good news of Jesus, you are kind of being an evangelist too. And as you, you look at these four guys and how they wrote, Matthew writes differently than Luke and John has a different perspective than Mark, but they all share the same story because it's guided, directed by the Holy Spirit. It's a unified story. Now, you might know that a couple of these writers, Matthew and John, were part of the original 12 disciples that Jesus called. Right? That um, they were with Jesus during, throughout his ministry for those three years. They were firsthand witnesses. So when they're writing, they're writing stuff that they actually heard and saw and experienced. They were there. In fact, Jesus tells them in John 14, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Wouldn't you like to have... The Holy Spirit bring to remembrance everything. Like, I can't even remember last week, let alone what happened 20, 30 years ago. But these gospel writers, they had the supernatural help of the Holy Spirit to help them remember accurately everything Jesus said and did. You say, well, what about the other two guys? What about Mark and Luke? They weren't part of the 12. No, but Mark was there. He was with Jesus. We read about him in the gospels. He was there. And he was a companion of both the apostles Peter and the apostle Paul. And then you have Luke who was with the Apostle Paul for many years. And so both through their own investigation and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we have one story from four perspectives. In fact, as we look at these four, three of them are very similar, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In fact, they're called the synoptic gospels because the word synoptic means to see together or to see the same. Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of see the story of Jesus the same way. 
tell it in the same kind of style. They were all written around the same time, about 20 to 30 years after Jesus died, rose again, and ascended into heaven. John, though, is a little bit different. You may have noticed his he talks about a lot of stuff the other three don't. Why? Because John writes his gospel much later, toward the end of his life, decades later. He's the last living apostle. And the other gospels were already circulating around. He says, you know what? I'm not going to just repeat everything that those guys said. I'm going to give you some more stuff. And so he, he brings out a whole lot of other details. Now, some of the, the stories overlap. Some of them are repeated. But a lot of stuff is unique to each of the gospel writers. And that's why God gave us these four stories, because when we put them all together, we get the fuller picture of what we need to know. It's not everything we'd like to know, but it's what we need to know. And each writer seemed to write to a different audience of people. They had a crowd that they were writing to. So let's take Matthew. Matthew was a Jewish man, right? And he writes primarily, it seems, to a Jewish audience. Because he's, he's talking so much about Jesus fulfilling all the Old Testament prophecies and so, signs and promises. He, he talks about him being the, the Hebrew Messiah or the Christ. The Christ, you know, that, that's not Jesus' last name. That's his title. It's the Greek form of Messiah. That he's this, this guy who's, who's the ultimate. He's the anointed one of God. The Savior King that we were promised. Now, Mark's gospel doesn't focus on that as much. Mark seems to be writing much more to a Roman audience, a non-Jewish audience who weren't so con concerned with all the Jewish stuff in the Old Testament. He wrote stories and action and power kind of things. And he, he, he talks more about Jesus being a suffering servant. Luke, Luke is the only Gentile, non-Jewish person writing a gospel, and he seems to be writing to a Greek-speaking audience and he focuses on Jesus uh, perfect humanity John well you know again he was he calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved he was a simple fisherman and so he writes more on the divinity of Jesus he highlights much more how Jesus is eternal God so when you put them all together you get this this these great different vantage points and and facets and, and each one is represented by a creature. So you see uh, that you've got these four creatures here, these four images. The first is a lion. The second is an ox. The third is a man. And the fourth is an eagle. What that's all about. Well, these four images make up what's called the tetramorph, which is just a Greek way of saying four forms. And these four forms have been traditionally associated with the four gospel writers. And it comes from these four creatures way back 600 years before Jesus was born in the book of Ezekiel. There, these creatures are mentioned there prophetically. And then later when you get to the end of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, you see these same four kinds of creatures encircling the throne of God. And it says there in Revelation 4, the first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like an ox the third living creature with the face of a man and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight and each of those again traditionally represents one of the gospel writers you say well, where's that in the bible it's not none of that is in the bible that each one of those things is one of the gospel writers it's just something that has kind of developed 
that um, you, you see in a lot of Christian art and architecture and in churches and cathedrals across Europe and across America. We first see them linked. In fact, we'll throw up some art on the screen so you can see it's, it's all over uh, buildings. It's all over stained glass. It's all over uh, paintings. You can see the different animals surrounding Jesus there. You say, Don't make too much of it is all I'm saying because... The Bible doesn't make that connection itself. In fact, they're not always associated with the same gospel writer. I mean, sometimes the lion is Mark and the man is Matthew and the ox is Luke. And so, but I will say the eagle is always John, which represents John. Now, that symbolism has just been something historically that has help people remember how the four Gospels are a little bit different. And each one brings out a little bit different aspect. Especially at a time when people didn't necessarily have the Scriptures to read for themselves. And if, even if they did, they might not be able to actually read them. So that was just a good memory device to help them figure out, here's how each Gospel is different. So Matthew, Matthew, written from a Jewish perspective. And one of Jesus' titles is what? He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, which would be important to the Jews because Judah was the main, you know, uh, tribe of, of the Jewish people. It's where you get the word Jew from, Judah. He's the lion, the king of the beast, the king of Israel, the king of the Jews. And if you've ever watched or read the great story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Anybody's, anybody read that or seen that movie? If you haven't, you got to see it. C.S. Lewis' classic story about this majestic lion who represents Jesus in the land of Narnia. Check it out this holiday. Read it with your kids. It's great. But I also suppose it's fitting that Matthew would be the one to write about Jesus as king because he served under a king. Remember what, G what Matthew was? His job was he was a tax collector in the Roman Empire. He served under the Roman emperor and more locally under the client king of Rome. His name was Herod the Great. So he knew what it was to serve a king. In fact, when Jesus called him to leave his tax-collecting business, it meant to leave that king and to follow a new king. In fact, that would come at great financial cost for Matthew to give up that lucrative career. Mark, though, focuses on Jesus more as a suffering servant. And so the ox is the symbol because the ox is a beast of burden, right? It's a beast of service. And at the end, what happens to the ox? It gets sacrificed. Luke is much more concerned with Jesus as the perfect man. And so the man represents Luke. John is always the eagle in flight, soaring up to the heavens to remind us of the heavenly nature, the divine nature of Jesus. So that's the background of our gospel. Let's get into the first one today. Because today we're going to do Matthew. Next week we're going to do Mark. Week three, we're going to do Luke, and then on Christmas Eve and Eve Eve, we'll talk about John. But Matthew presents Jesus as this messianic king. And here's the main thing to understand. The key is fulfillment. Fulfillment. Jesus is the fulfillment for all the, the Old Testament Jewish scriptures. Now, that may not resonate with you as much because chances are you're probably not Jewish, you don't have that background, so it, it doesn't mean as much to you. But it meant a lot 
to the Jewish people who were the first Christians. It's why Matthew quotes so much from the Old Testament. In fact, he references it 68 times. That's a lot. And he also points out 23 prophecies from the Old Testament that relate to Jesus. That's a lot of prophecies. And his concern is to show the Jewish people that Jesus is fulfilling the Hebrew Old Testament prophecies, promises, and symbols pointing toward the Messiah. He was to be the royal king from the line of David, the great king of Israel who would rule over God's kingdom forever. In fact, the word kingdom is used so much throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus preaches about the kingdom over and over and over. 55 times it's used. And Jesus is called the son of David seven times. So it's a big deal. And that's why Matthew begins his Gospel with a genealogy, right? So let's read the genealogy. How about it? Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now I'm not going to go any further. <laughs> because I, I know, like, when we start reading that, you're like, oh, can we just skip over that part? That's kind of boring, all those names, and so-and-so begat so-and-so. Who let's get on to the Christmas story, the good stuff about Joseph and Mary. I get that. But you know what? To the Jewish people... This was super important because it gave Jesus' credentials. It showed his pedigree. It gave him the legal right to the throne of Israel. He is a descendant of King David. Now Luke's gospel, the other birth story, the other genealogy, takes it down through the lineage of Mary. Matthew takes it through the lineage, it seems, of Joseph, his stepfather, which is why Jesus is the only name where it doesn't say so-and-so begat so-and-so. No man fathered Jesus. Here's how it ends. It refers to Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. See, Jesus was supernaturally born of a virgin without a human father. Matthew, his gospel genealogy goes back to Abraham. Luke's genealogy goes all the way back to Adam, to the very beginning. Why doesn't Matthew go back to Adam? Because Matthew's writing to Jews. And to Jews, you start with who? Abraham. Abraham is the main man. He is the, the greatest Jew of all time. He's the first Jewish person. He's the father of the Jewish nation. So yes, we got to start with Abraham. In fact, the prophecy would be that through the seed of Abraham, the whole world would be blessed. So the Messiah had to come through Abraham. It couldn't be just some random guy. Jesus fulfills it. He is the seed. He is the son of Abraham. And that's how the whole world is blessed through Abraham, because of Jesus. Now, after Abraham, he goes down to David, King David, the greatest king of Israel. Joseph's a descendant. And so Joseph adopts Jesus into the royal family of King David. But it's a very different royal family. I mean, it's, it's not a, like typical royal birth into a palace or into a, a, a lot of wealth. Jesus is born to a common laborer. He's laid in a manger. And, but look, Jesus, as the oldest child, the firstborn in this royal family, had legal right to the throne of Israel. You realize, even though Joseph was just a common man, he really could have 
been the king of Israel. He had the right to sit on the throne of Israel if it were an independent nation. But it wasn't. It was under oppression by the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire had set up their own client king there locally, Herod the Great, who had no right to the throne. He was a poser king with a poser dynasty. Joseph had the right to the throne. But what's interesting is Jews who reject Jesus today are still looking for their Messiah to come. But you know what? You can't, you can't even have a Messiah from the line of David anymore because there's no possible way to know if anybody was born from the line of David. Those genealogies have been lost. The records have been destroyed. The, Jesus is the very last one that we know clearly was from the royal line of David. There can no longer be another person that can fulfill that prophecy now, Matthew 2 in the, in the birth story also talks about the wise men, right? We love the wise men story. And some people think the wise men coming from the east were kings, right? We sing, we three kings of Orient are. Now, we don't know that they were kings. Um, don't really know much about what magi were other than probably some kind of educated men who specialized in astronomy and astrology and other things. But it, here's what Matthew reports. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king... Behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born what? King of the Jews. For we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Now get this. They're not even Jewish, as far as we know. They've come from far away. And yet somehow they knew from the Hebrew scriptures that there was a prophecy of a coming king, and they knew that he would be more than a man, because why? They worship him. Pretty interesting. And when Herod the king heard this, well, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, the prophet Micah. And you, Bethlehem land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For from you will come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now why is that troubling to Herod? Because this is going to be a com competition for him. This is a rival ruler for the throne of Israel. He doesn't want to give up his throne. So something's got to be done. He devises a plot to murder this baby. So nobody can take his power from him. So he says to the wise men, go find out where he is, and I'm going to come worship him too. Well, the wise men were wise to Herod's plan, and they don't report back. So what does Herod do? He, he says, i got to ensure that I keep my throne, and he wipes out all the baby boys just to make sure that Messiah is killed. So, look, in just the first two chapters of Matthew alone, you've already got five quotations from the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. First of all, you've got the prophecy of the virgin birth from Isaiah. Then you've got Bethlehem being the place where the Messiah would be born. That's from Micah. Then from Jeremiah, the prophecy of the, the, the slaughter of the babies in the morning of their mothers. Then, you know, uh, Mary and Joseph flee into Egypt with their baby to escape Herod. And the prophet Hosea says, God will call his son out of Egypt, and they return. And then there's this quotation that says, He shall be called a Nazarene which is probably from Isaiah 11, where the Messiah is called a netzer, or a shoot in English. Look at, look at what it says there in Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot 
and that's Air, and that's Serene. From the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. What's that about? Well, you got a stump, you got a family tree, and out of the tree grows branches. And Jesus was a part of this family tree. He's a shoot, all right? It's a way of saying he, he grew out of this family. Behold, the days are coming. This is Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David, this King David, a righteous branch, an offshoot from his family tree, and he will reign as what? King. King. So let me outline Matthew's gospel for you. Break it down real easy into three sections, all right? Number one, the first section is the birth of the king and preparing to receive him. That's Matthew 1 through chapter 4, verse 11. All right, so this is the birth story. This is the story of John the Baptist announcing Jesus' arrival, right? Because ancient kings would have a herald who would go out before them and announce his arrival. And then you got the baptism of Jesus and his temptation in the wilderness for 40 days, which is almost like Matthew maybe, I don't know, saying like Jesus is reliving the story of Israel, how they went into the wilderness for 40 years and they crossed over the Jordan River. That's where Jesus was baptized. So this all just sets it up then. He's got the credentials. Here's the next section, the message and ministry of the king. That's Matthew 4 through, tw through 25. Now, Jesus' primary mission was to the Jews, right? He came first to the Jews. What's the f one of the first things he does? He calls together 12 disciples. 12. Why 12? Because there were 12 tribes in Israel. He's starting a new nation, a new kingdom. And just as Moses went up on the mountain, and the, the prophecy was there would be another prophet like Moses, and Moses goes on the mountain to give the law, to receive and give the law. Guess what Jesus does in Matthew 5? Goes up on the mountain and gives the Sermon on the Mount. And he announces this new kingdom. He gives this, this new law. He says this in Matthew 5, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I'm not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. The key is fulfillment. There it is. He is the fulfillment. He is the one greater than Moses who gives us a new law, a new command to love one another as I have loved you. And in this new kingdom, we operate according to these two commandments. In Matthew chapter 22, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength and mind and love your neighbor as yourself because all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Those two laws fulfill, fulfill all the hundreds of Old Testament laws. In fact, get this, some would say that the Gospel of Matthew is split up into five different discourses or teachings of Jesus. You can study it for yourself. Why? Some would say because Moses gave us five books of the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Isn't that interesting? But we're no longer under the law of Moses anymore. We're, un we're no longer under the old covenant. It's been fulfilled. We're under the new covenant that Jesus has brought us through his blood, which sets us up for the third section, the death and resurrection of the king. Matthew 26, through the end in 28. The book concludes with Jesus fulfilling the mission he came to do, and that was to die as our Savior. And get this, the irony of all this is that the Jewish people killed their king, the one that they had been waiting for all those centuries. The Jewish leaders murdered their nation's Messiah. 
They brought him up on charges before the Roman governor, Pilate, charging him as a threat, as a rival king to the emperor. Matthew 27, now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. (laughs) Yes, he is the king. But Pilate saw, You are no threat to the emperor. What kind of king are you? And so he protested to the crowd, Do you want me to crucify your king? And they said, What? We have no king but Caesar. And so he was crucified. And another irony is is that above his head on that cross, Pilate had posted a sign. Here's what it said. Matthew 27, over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. No, the people said. Just say he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate said, I've written what I've written. He is the king of the Jews. And when he dies... You know what happens in the temple, right? The great Jewish temple in Jerusalem. At that moment, the curtain that separated the most holy place from the rest of the temple is split in two from top to bottom by the hand of God, signifying that it was all fulfilled. That the old covenant, Mosaic law, Jewish animal sacrificial system was finished. It was fulfilled because the perfect sacrifice The Passover lamb had been given. He fulfills the role of the whole Exodus story of the lamb's blood being shed and and spread over the door frames of the home so the people would be safe and they would be delivered from slavery. That's what he does for us. A new way has been made into the presence of God through his death and we are all able to enter into the most holy place, into the kingdom of God and God shows his approval that this is legit by raising him from the dead. Jesus is raised up, this suffering servant who is the perfect man, was proven by the resurrection to be eternal God. And we'll talk about those in the coming weeks ahead. But he's alive. He's a conquering king. He is victorious over our enemies of sin, death, the devil, and hell. And he reigns forever. He is more than king of the Jews. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he is not just some king over a geographical nation. He is not over a political government. He is not over a racial group of people. He is the king of all. And he says, my kingdom is not of this world. It is a spiritual kingdom. It is transnational. It is transracial. And it is us. We are the kingdom. Wherever people bow the knee to Jesus as Lord and confess his name, That's where he reigns and rules as king. His kingdom is in us and among us right now. The Jewish story reached its finale with Jesus because that law was nailed to the cross. The new covenant had begun. Israel as a nation had ceased to exist 40 years after Jesus rose to heaven when it was destroyed in AD 70 by the Romans and the temple was destroyed and the sacrifices stopped and the Jews were dispersed and the genealogies all lost. But it doesn't matter anymore because we are the kingdom and it doesn't matter if you're Jewish or you're Gentile. The church is the new true Israel of God's people today. And you and I are in that kingdom. So what's our takeaway? What's our big idea? 
follow Jesus by obeying him because he's king. Is he your king? Have you bowed the knee in submission to him? Are you doing what he says? Because Jesus stated very plainly in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter what? The kingdom of heaven. But the one who does, does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Look, we all fail and fall, and there is great forgiveness. But our aim is to do what he says. Because he's king. And how can you know what he wants you to do unless you know his word? And so I want to challenge you to read God's word. Specifically, why not read the gospels this season? In fact, this very week, why not read the gospel of Matthew? Download that version app on your device or go online to BibleGateway.com or pull that Bible off the shelf and read Matthew, 28 chapters in seven days. That's four chapters a day. That's about 21 minutes a day, less than the average sitcom. Give up a sitcom to read through Matthew this week. It'll only take you a total of like two and a half hours all week long. That would be a great way to start the Christmas season. Do it while you're, listen to it. You can, you can, on these sites, they'll, they'll read it to you while you're doing chores, while you're commuting. Let's do this. You know, Matthew ends his gospel with this stirring scene back up on the mountain, surrounded by his disciples. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. Isn't that interesting, too? Some, you ever, you still doubt? And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe, to obey, to do everything I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. He has all the authority. And he commands us to make disciples. But first you've got to be one. Have you bowed the knee to the King of kings? Has you, have you confessed him as the Lord of lords? Have you received him as your, your Messiah, your Christ, your Savior? If you'll turn to him today in repentance, if you will submit to him in baptism, be united with him, enter into his kingdom, we would love to help you do that. And so as always, we ask you to reach out and help. Let us help you by answering your questions, by praying with you, by getting you ready for your own baptism right here and now today in this place. Or if you're watching online, we'll set it up as soon as possible. We'll get you in here. Or we'll show you how to do it at home. But text your name to that number, 734-304-7248, or email us at next at southpointccc.com, and we will get back to you right away. Let him give you a new life in a new kingdom. And it begins with making the best decision ever so if if you're here with us on your way out today meet with somebody out there in the lobby ready to talk with you they'll be at the point they'll be outside of room c and d they'll talk they'll pray they'll they'll help you out whatever you got to do 
But I want to invite everybody to come back next week as we continue in this series. And again, invite somebody to come with you or to watch with you online because we're called to be disciples and to make disciples. Each one of us are called to be an evangelist. So until we meet again next Sunday, keep praying, keep reading your Bible, and keep sharing the good news.